Welcome to the York County Economic Alliance podcast, produced in partnership with BizNews PA. I'm Joel Berg, editor and founder of BizNews PA. Today, we're talking about cybersecurity with Dr. James Norrie, a professor at York College of Pennsylvania and the founder and CEO of CyberCon IQ, based in York. The company worked with clients to reduce the risk of cyber breaches due to human error. All right, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. How would you characterize the approach that CyberCon IQ takes to cybersecurity cyber and what does make it different from other, other programs that are out there? So to avoid this being a commercial, let's make sure for your listeners that CyberCon IQ definitively sees cybersecurity as a human issue, not a technical issue. And I think that distinguishes quite a bit as a company, but it's actually important for us to distinguish the problem for your listeners. The opportunity for uh, technology to improve convenience, speed, to offer us all kinds of advantages comes with risks. And the risks are that those vendors aren't your friend. Those vendors aren't there to protect you. They're there to take away some of the things that that I think most consumers should be far more attentive to. So as we said in the speech earlier today, that if you are getting a product for free, then you are the product, right? And they're using that information about you for their benefit. So you need to be aware of that and write that balance. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think we always tend to think of cybersecurity as a technical problem because it is technology that's created the problem. But technology is operated by humans. We're users. It's the user base that probably can have the most impact on their own security posture. So I I often use this phrase. I said, we're changing the world of cybersecurity one human, one style at a time. Like we're doing it one person at a time. And if I can reach even one listener and have them think about whether the balance of what they're trading off between convenience and fun or whatever whatever it is that on the good side, also just bear in mind some of the issues around vulnerability and privacy and security, we will have done our job here today. So what makes it a human problem and not a technical problem? Humans aren't programmable. So really, a really simple phrase. Technology at the perimeter can, as I again as I said in the speech earlier, can probably grab about 85 to 90% of most known threats. So if we've already seen something in technology, we can program a machine to detect it and repel it at the perimeter. So we build these moats and these walls around our businesses, around our homes, or we think we do, and I'll come back to the home technology in a second. But that moat is only as good as its ability to repel a known threat. The thing that worries me is the rate at which we have novel threats. And that with AI, as we said in the speech, AI is being in the bad guy's hands for longer and is being used more succinctly and swiftly by the criminals than it is by those of us trying to defend people. And part of it is it's expensive. Part of it is it's unknown. I could go down the list of things. I I don't quite agree that it's an existential threat to humanity quite yet. Could get there. But I think that AI will increase the speed with which we see novel threats. So that means something can always get through. So we say in our business, somebody always has the keys to the IT kingdom. There's somebody inside that business who has the access and the ability as part of their job to give away, share, click, whatever it is. And that click boom is going to rely on their cyber judgment and their cyber resilience. And that's why it's a human issue. They're not programmable. We have to encourage them not to think of themselves as part of the problem, but as part of the solution. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? How do you make people think of themselves as part of the solution? And also maybe even become aware that this is, that they are part of the, that they are the solution, or that it's a human Issue, challenge right. to fight cybersecurity, not, not necessarily, hey, we just put up a bunch of walls and we're good. So the way we approach this is we encourage our clients to think about it 
as a behavioral and a cultural issue inside the organization. So it is by modifying each individual's behavior that we can shift the balance of the culture. And we talk about a security first culture at CyberCon IQ. Security first culture means we put a priority on maintaining security, but not at the expense of keeping our clients satisfied or doing our jobs, like there's a balance. So we wanna work within that balance because we all have things we have to do. So if we get to that situation where, as an example, let's say we have an elderly client and maybe that elderly client can't cope with the encryption or the password stuff we're sending or they, they just, what are the alternatives that are safe that the human can navigate that overcome the technical barriers while remaining safe. And it's those trade-offs that we educate your workforce about. And it's really important that they understand that they need to elevate those. The other thing is, if company processes, procedures, rules, regulations, we all have them, organizations have to have a certain structure to function. If those aren't working for us, well, those are ours to change. So we, we really think about this as an activity that involves a dialogue between the business and the security team. It isn't for the security team to write edicts about what you will and won't do. You know, don't click on attachments. And Well, if you work in the legal department, purchasing, human resources, that's a stupid rule. You can't not click on attachments and do your job. So actually what we say is, how do you figure out which attachments you should click on and which ones should? That's judgment. That's resilience. That's using the human in a practical way as part of the solution to the problem instead of making them the problem. I'm thinking of it as an analogy to driving, right? Because cars are ultimately a technology, but we say people are... People <laughs> an ever-increasing <laughs> technology, yeah. but anyway, yes. But people are the ones in the driver's seat, and they're the ones... It's usually their lapses in judgment or or failures that cause accidents. It's not necessarily the vehicle that causes the accident, right? Right, but, right. Um, I don't know if it's, it's Situational different. distractibility, right? Yeah. In a moment, in a moment mm-hmm. in a car, traveling at some amount of speed, all we have to do is take our eyes off the road right. and boom, right? Yeah. So same thing is true in cyber. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to artificial intelligence and you raised the example earlier about in your speech about um, fake videos showing children being kidnapped. And I was starting to think, are there examples, I could possibly see that as some way to spoof companies as well. Are there examples Absolutely. of those of, of deep, those sort of, I guess, deep fakes, or I don't know if that's the right word, but mm-hmm. deep fake videos that that could fool companies into thinking there's some real real problem because, hey, there's a video of their facility on fire, being attacked, or what, who knows, right, robbed? Or so let, let's use you as an example. So I presume you have some social media footprint someplace. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. on what kinds of systems? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, but okay. very rarely. And they would be using your name? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And your name would be associated with where you work? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now I'm a crook and I know who you are by name. I know where you work. Now here's the next thing. Would any of it ever have anything to do with your voice? Is there anything up there where you've done a presentation or... There's these, there's these podcasts. Okay, so these podcasts <laughs> are great. On, they're on LinkedIn. So one of the things we teach every single new employee at CyberCon IQ, and we're growing pretty rapidly these days, mm-hmm. is to be very attentive because my voice has been replicated hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And the deep fake of the voice is actually the easiest thing for crooks to do today. Mm-hmm. So we regularly get voicemails at the office in my voice really? telling my EA what to do. And how do you get them to figure out that it's not you? Well, so we have a standing rule. I will never leave a voicemail for Julie on the office phone. I will always call her on her cell phone. So back to what I said in the speech, we have alternate pathways of communication where we Mm -hmm. both know, we would recognize Mm -hmm. because the messages, when you play them, Mm -hmm. they sound just like me. And it's because there are thousands of words that I used. Well, this morning I spoke pretty much nonstop for what, 50 minutes? Yeah. And that's all recorded somewhere. And this podcast is another good example. I do my own podcast. 
So my voice, there is a snippet that can be assembled into words that can leave a very authentic message in my voice for my employees. So the very first thing we tell them is that because I'm the voice of CyberCon IQ, I'm also our biggest risk. Yeah. <clears throat> what about on the video side? So they get a video, say maybe of, I don't, I don't know if saying you being kidnapped, but maybe of, you know, they, they might trade to your office and they'll share your home. Well, and, right. So, so same concept. So yeah. there are lots and lots. I mean, if you go online, you'll see tons of video of me. Yeah. So all they have to do is find a few seconds of video mm -hmm. where they drop in a different background. So they're actually not going to be using the video the way it is. Mm -hmm. They're going to be extracting a few seconds of video. That's all that's required mm -hmm. for them to build something around it that makes it look scary. Now, my mom, who I adore, we talked about my 87-year-old mom in the in the uh, speech, and she'd be horrified to know that her age was now public. But <laughs> it's not that she's old and incapable, but like any mother, she worries. She worries very much about my um sort of public profile. Mm -hmm. And so were she to get a video like that, it would seem very credible to her. So what I've always told her is, well, call Julie. And we keep coming back to Julie, yeah. whose nickname in the office is she who must be obeyed. <laughs> so as I said to mom, if you're concerned, either call my partner or call Julie. So there's always an alternate form of contact for her because that reassures her that if she's starting to feel like that's real, she doesn't have to, in the moment, respond to the threat directly. She'd be better to respond to the threat indirectly. Mm -hmm. And that's part of that save methodology we talked yeah. about so powerfully in the speech, this idea of stop, assess, validate, mm -hmm. verify before you engage. So the save methodology, which we have patented, is so important to teach mm -hmm. people because that situational distractibility, if in the moment we pause, that already creates this pattern interrupt and it stops that rising anxiety and that fear that is so powerful and, and seems so real. It's fake. I mean, it's been, yeah. it's been architected to make you feel that way. Mm -hmm. So you'll do something. Mm -hmm. And that's why we call you an accidental insider. Mm -hmm. So for your listeners, we use this phrase in technology. It's not that anybody intended, not my mother, not your mother. Nobody intended to do this. Mm -hmm. You're responding to what you think is real, but it's not. Yeah. So how do you replicate that on an enterprise scale to keep you know a large bank or even a small bank safe from from these sorts of from those sorts of attacks? Well, again, we work with our clients, especially in um, regulated industries like banking and healthcare and other places, to explain to them that they shouldn't be trying to emphasize compliance because that's what we historically have done. Compliance with a whole set of rules. They should be building this resilience and judgment in their workforce. So just like we would have. And so banking is a good example, and I do a lot of work in banking, obviously. But we have a know your client rule. A know your client rule means you have to know your client. You have to have spoken to them, sat with them. You need to know something about their financial history. You need to know something about their appetite for risk and all these kinds of things. So I, the same thing I say. So I say NYC, know your client, can also be know your criminal. Know what they're capable of. Know how and why they manipulate. Know why you might be vulnerable and know what to do before it happens. So I say to the banks, Teach the human side of cyber first. The technical will follow, but teach the human side of cyber. And it seems like you have to have safety valves, as you point out, like your like with your with your mother. Any yep. any you want to have them other way or your employees or other ways of right. uh, determining whether a message is real or and now right. I guess an image is real or a sound is real. Right. It, it sounds real and it looks real. Right. But. And it can feel real. Mm -hmm. And humans act off feelings. Mm -hmm. So very important to identify that as being okay. Mm -hmm. and find those those pathways. So we call them pathways to compromise and pathways mm -hmm. to compliance. The pathways to compromise are those folks on the outside trying to trick us, to mm -hmm. turn us into these accidental insiders. Mm -hmm. The pathways to compliance is what we help people with to navigate that. So if you feel anxious, if something seems strange, what are the things you can do to 
uh, determine, you know, how do you validate? How do you verify outside the chain, inside the chain? What to, you know, you, you can teach people mm-hmm. to be their own, to be their own cyber warriors as opposed to counting on somebody else, right? So back to what we talked about around the moats. If cybersecurity always remains somebody else's problem, the mm-hmm. technical team, the, the CISO, whoever it is, mm-hmm. well, why would you waste your time learning? So you mentioned you don't see AI yet as an, as an existential threat. And I don't know if you saw the news recently. There's a lot of people who came out and said, hey, it is an existential threat. Or it could it, well, it may become one. Become I don't one. see it as one yet, but I, I was careful to add the word yet. Yeah. I think it's a credible position, mm-hmm. and we should be very aware as technologists, mm-hmm. that AI offers great promise, and it can really do amazing things. Mm-hmm. But it can also potentially exacerbate an existing set of risks we already know mm-hmm. and put them on steroids to the point where it could become very dangerous, mm-hmm. if not deadly. And it seems like it's embedded in so much already that as it, are we even past the point where we can, where we'll be able to sort of rein it back in or is it? Um... Well, we, we can never stop technology progress. So let's begin with this idea that you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? right? So that, that's not gonna happen. AI is here, it will remain here and it will continue to improve and be used. Mm-hmm. And we will find lots of really good, redeeming applications of AI that are fundamentally important. It will change, probably not for um, guys our age, but for our children, for our grandchildren, it will change things like the definition of work. It'll change the definition of knowledge. You know, one of the most important things we've always imagined about education was that if I stuffed your brain full of really interesting things, knowledge about things, Mm -hmm. I was making you smarter. There's very little proof of that. Mm-hmm. And we could go back to the days of, you know, Aristotle and Plato and, and sort of Greek um, discourse. I am pretty sure that they were not teaching us anything about something. Mm-hmm. They were teaching us about ourselves. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were giving us then access to a new discipline called philosophy mm-hmm. that really didn't count on objective knowledge, mm-hmm. but subjective reflection. And that's where we're heading. So I think on the positive side, it has an amazing opportunity. And I won't live long enough to see the fulsomeness of this. It'll take decades. But I can see that promise on the horizon. But then I can see an equal amount of danger. Mm -hmm. When knowledge has essentially no discrete value and everybody has access to it theoretically, Mm -hmm. and it can be something that's a a fingertip of typing away, What does that mean? Does it mean the collapse of economic value for work other than labor? Returning us, in fact, away from the dream of what many people think should be emancipation from labor to it being the last sole remaining thing for which somebody could do that they could get paid. That's a really existential threat. Mm-hmm. So so I can see a lot of really negative things. And the senator was at the, the meeting, of course, today, and we were chatting after, and what she said that I think is so profound is that there are no guardrails in place. And she mm-hmm. says, by the time we get the guardrails in place, the train will already be at the next station. Right. I thought it was a brilliant phrase. Yeah. And it's because the guardrails aren't there to keep the train where it is today. Mm-hmm. It's actually about the, the trajectory of the track and the, the, the way the train is going to maneuver mm-hmm. going forward. And that's what the law and politics is not good at. We don't mm-hmm. get ahead of technology mm-hmm. trends. We respond typically mm-hmm. to what's already happened. And yeah. so... The law, by definition, in a common law jurisdiction like the United States, we count on precedents and mm-hmm. settling things that have happened to right. decide what should happen in the future. Yeah. The problem is we need to actually prognosticate and mm-hmm. forecast what's going to happen in the future and get ahead of it. 
that's very hard for society. So, mm. so technology always outpaces typically the society's ability to evolve and the human's mm. ability to accept. So that's going to be the existential threat. Yeah. And the law also looks for analogies in past precedents, right? Correct. It's like in this, there's not a clear analogy or the analogies could be, <clears throat> might not work so well mm-hmm. <laughs> that they do find. Um, so you mentioned um, the, uh, it was subjective that the, that the knowledge is not objective knowledge, but subjective reflection. And how would you define that? And maybe what is what would be the what would that look like, or what would that? I mean, I'm, just, I'm thinking educationally and for younger people, like what would be the well, the, the classic phrase. I think, mm-hmm. therefore, I am. Right. right? So the, it's the idea that the state, and this is getting profoundly yeah. philosophical for your listeners, <laughs> totally. that the state of being human is about our ability to reflect on ourselves and our place in the world, and. Mm-hmm. And to form a civil society in which all humans want to live. Mm-hmm. That has been historically viewed as education, meaning I learn about science and the arts and mm-hmm. math and geography and history. And this is all supposed to give me lessons mm-hmm. that inform this subjective reflection. Yeah. But when knowledge doesn't have to be delivered because knowledge is omnipresent, it's there. Mm-hmm. I right, can just... learn anything I want. Yep. In context with a few, you know, taps of my fingertips, don't have to type just to ask, or just a voice, and don't even have to type, right? Yeah. So they're talking about lack of physical labor. Mm-hmm. What what does that do, for instance, for educational models? So mm-hmm. in education, we typically are testing mm-hmm. for knowledge, that's objective. What about if we had to test for subjective reflection? Mm-hmm. What if we were testing people to understand whether or not they could function? as a member of civil society, mm-hmm. whether they had enough self-awareness as an example, did mm-hmm. they have a definition of themselves? Did they have a pathway and a, and a pathway forward through a complicated world? What if that was what education was about now? Mm-hmm. That would significantly shift yeah. what we're all doing. Yeah, that would be a change. You're right, it does get into the philosophical realm. Yeah. <laughs> of, and that's a huge shift between around education. Mm-hmm. I am curious, you mentioned a little bit, there's a story behind, I guess, sort of what led you to create CyberCon IQ in the first place. And I'm curious, you're kind of what led you down the path. That, yeah, uh, so I talk about this in, in my book, which has the minor, um, yeah. the minor claim of being a, an Amazon bestseller. But mm-hmm. so in CyberCon, the book, um, what we talk about is the advent of technology at the time. And now we're talking 20. 15, 2016, I was working with a very large bank. Mm-hmm. And we had just finished an exercise where we had taught all of the bank's employees not to write down passwords and username mm-hmm. combinations, which was a common practice. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to test how well we had done, right? Because this seemed to make some sense because they'd had a number of breaches that were human factors based and they were frustrated. And I understand that. And they want to keep their clients safe and want to keep the bank safe. So off we go. On Labor Day Monday, the trading floors closed, nobody's there, and with security we wander around and we are opening desks, looking under keyboards, looking mm-hmm. in stationary drawers, and what do we find? Well, we find 43% of people had, in one mm-hmm. of those three places, written down password and ID combinations. Everything you needed for the keys to the kingdom. And there's three places. And three places typically, right? <laughs> under the keyboard, in the drawer, or in the underneath their tray in the right-hand side. We, we got the pattern after yeah. a while. It was pretty easy. <laughs> Rarely other places. Mm. Now, lots of them didn't write it down. Yeah. But the question that's intriguing is, why were some people compliant and others weren't? Mm. Was it a question of memory and age? Was it a question of 
willingness to comply? Was it a question of capability and skill and understanding what they'd been told or asked to do? Like there was a, a raft of questions. And so I was sitting with my client because we retired, quite frankly, to lunch and, and a couple of glasses of wine to digest that we had just failed to do anything yeah. that we'd hoped to achieve. It was still a holiday. It was, so. it was still a holiday. So <laughs> off we went. And, and, you know, when I was looking at him and we were thinking about this and he said something to me that triggered, he said, is there anything else we can do? Because he said, that's just not acceptable. Yeah. And when he said, is there anything else we can do? It occurred to me that what we hadn't really thought about is the fundamental human side of this. Mm -hmm. So we had a population of several hundred and we had a dispersion of degree of compliance. Mm -hmm. There had to be a cause for that that had nothing to do with technology. This was a purely a human decision, mm -hmm. whether I was or I was not gonna comply with the rule. Right. And then, so we had to get to why. And this began a whole journey. In this particular bank, they used a tool called DISC, which I am certified in, which mm -hmm. I, I have some knowledge of. And it began to measure traits and tendencies. And we began to look for correlations between who somebody was and behaviors. And we didn't get much using that. And anyway, it's a long journey and mm -hmm. it's described in the book. But eventually, we were able to start to narrow down and to the model we have today. Mm -hmm. Very specific things that are endemic to our personalities, as mm -hmm. I talked about in the speech, these are fundamentally the way we behave and see the world and they're not dependent on technology but they affect how we use technology mm -hmm. therefore it affects how we are or aren't vulnerable to certain kinds of threats and so the journey began and that's literally what happened yeah. and it was such a thunderbolt because it when i stopped looking at it as a technology problem mm -hmm and absolutely focused entirely on the human factor, on the human mm -hmm. behavior and the choices we all make. Right. This is what has caused our ability to dramatically reduce risk for our clients. Yeah, because people were hearing the message, don't write down your password. But so they weren't yet, doing they it. They were doing it, but well, they were. Yeah. Right, so it's classic. There's a difference. Yeah. So Plato, a long time ago, Greek philosopher got this right. There's a difference between knowing mm -hmm. and doing. And the right. example I gave in the speech that caused mm -hmm. the audience to laugh in self-recognition yeah. was New Year's resolutions. Right. How many of us make them and mm -hmm. then break them? Yeah. So even when we know something is something we should do, that it's good for us to do it, mm -hmm. that it is something that is not anything but positive, we still don't do it. Mm -hmm. That's human nature. So we're talking about human nature. Yeah. So what do you see, maybe as what you see now as the biggest opportunity for um, CyberCon IQ? And is it a challenge to get clients to think this way or do they kind of want mostly to in Pennsylvania as I said yeah. <laughs> um, well so you know we have a world-class cybersecurity company right here in Pennsylvania York yeah. York County Pennsylvania yeah. mm -hmm. so it's a little hard in my own backyard for people to imagine that we are a global company but we are and, mm -hmm. and we have lots of opportunity ahead of us our, our biggest challenge is this remaining idea that is born out of where the, the problem came from that it's because it's technology, it's somebody else's problem. Like mm -hmm. I use technology, but I'm not a technologist, right? So mm -hmm. this is, so somebody else has to do it. I just, I wanna be able to turn on my computer, I wanna be able to log in and do my work. And I don't, re I want it to kind of be invisible or disappear. I don't really wanna know what goes on mm -hmm. underneath that keyboard, I don't care. Right. The problem with that is you can't disdain that without then becoming part of the problem. Mm -hmm. You can't be a naive user of technology. So we've made it so easy for users and particularly some forms of technology. We talked about the, the phishing reporting yeah. button as an example. You know, they slavishly punch it like, you know, right. why wouldn't you report it? Oh, yeah. phishing, 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 phishing. But that doesn't teach you any judgment. Right. That doesn't cause you to have to reflect. It doesn't make you the person who can keep yourself safer. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Pardon me. Mm -hmm. It relies on somebody else. Mm 
-hmm. So self-reliance, reflection, judgment, mm -hmm. personal resilience, this is what it's about. Now, what we've discovered at CyberCon IQ is if we do it right, that keeps people not only safer at the office, mm -hmm. keeps them safer at home. Mm -hmm. And they become really intrigued by this idea that they are personally responsible for their own security and privacy. This mm -hmm. is fundamentally a shift. So the market is moving rapidly towards yeah. us, and we're really yeah. glad that that's happening. But that's the biggest shift I've seen, mm -hmm. is in the last couple of years, particularly with the rise of COVID and working from home. Right. So many people are entirely dependent on networks to mm -hmm. do their work. Mm -hmm that that also means they should be entirely dependent on themselves to make sure that they operate in that that interconnected world safely. Yeah, it's not just their work, it's their healthcare, their banking. Everything, their, yeah, absolutely, their our entire education. lives. Yeah. Driving our cars, we talked about that. Yeah. You know, I use the, the ring and Nest thermostats and all this stuff. I mean, the average household has six unknown, undetected mm. connections between devices in the home and somebody else's network that they mm. don't even monitor or control. They have no idea that their smart TV is mm. connected to manufacturing and gets updates online. They have no idea that Nest and Ring mm. or, you know, Amazon Echo yeah. and, and Google, these are all devices that are listening to us all the time. They're like permanently connected. Yeah. And it does seem like magic, but it's dangerous magic. Yeah. Dangerous magic, right? We, we all got to go back and look at the Harry Potter movies again, right? <laughs> or read the privacy policies. Or read the privacy policies, right. <laughs> well, I once read that it would take, I think, if you were to read all the privacy policies and agreements that you signed in, in your life, it would take you about a week or two of reading. I bet. It's all without sleeping. Well, and how many of us just click, I agree? Yeah. yeah. We don't bother. Well, every day. Right. <laughs> so. All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Dory. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the York County Economic Alliance podcast produced in partnership with BizNews PA. Join us next month as we discuss regional real estate trends.